Good evening. Thank you all so much for joining us. My name is Emily Duffy, and on behalf of the Catholic Information Center, it's my pleasure to welcome you all here this evening and to introduce Stephen White, author of Red, White, Blue, and Catholic. Stephen is a fellow in the Catholic Studies Program at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. His work focuses on the application of Catholic social teaching to contemporary political and cultural issues. Stephen's newly released book is, of course, very timely given the upcoming election in November. However, as he shares in his book, and I'm sure he'll touch on tonight, we are all called to be faithful citizens 365 days of the year, not just the first Tuesday in November. And with that, please help me to welcome Stephen White. Thank you, Emily. Um, thank you to all of you for coming this evening. Um, thank you to Father Arnie, who was here a moment ago, uh, and to everyone here at the Catholic Information Center for inviting me. Uh, very excited to be here. Uh, Donald Trump was just a few blocks from here earlier today, giving a, a speech on foreign policy, as I'm told. Um, we won't be talking about him very much this evening, uh, if everything goes well. Um, the, the book that I've written is a short book. It has the virtue of brevity. I want to tell you this because I have a friend who, who ordered it and then called me and wondered where the rest of it was. <laughs> um, not that I feel the need to, to defend myself for having written such a short book. Um, but part of the reason it's brief is because of what this book is supposed to be and who it's supposed to be for and what it's supposed to do. Uh, the idea for the book uh, came when Liguri contacted me and they wanted to, to know if I was interested in writing, I think the, the phrase we used was a, an informed Catholic voter guide. Um, and I thought that that sounded like an interesting idea. Um, I'm certain that the bishops have written just such a thing. And that if somebody wanted an authoritative informed Catholic voter guide, they should probably read that or any of the dozens of other informed Catholic voter guides that we see every two or four years from any number of different institutions who want to tell you the real Catholic way of voting precisely how they would vote. Um, so I said, I'm not particularly interested in writing a Catholic voter guide, uh, but what I would be interested in doing, if they were interested in, in having it, was to write a book about uh, the other 364 days of the year uh, where we exercise our, our citizenship um, most. Most of what we do as citizens doesn't happen in a voting booth. Um, and as important as the exercise of our voting right is, that's not where most of our responsibilities as citizens are fulfilled. And they said, that sounds like a good idea. And so that's what I did. Um, so what we have is, is a short guide. It's not uh, uh, a comprehensive treatise on Catholic social teaching. Um, and it's not simply a policy guide. Uh, what I tried to do was to address a few questions about what the church says about our citizenship, about what the church says about how we live our lives in society, and to address several questions that very often are missed entirely, that aren't even asked, let alone answered. So to explain what I mean, um, I'm going to begin uh, where I begin in the book, uh, looking at what the church means when she talks about Catholic social teaching. Catholic social teaching is often taken to be uh, a bundle of policy issues or policy positions, uh, a series of teachings on issues that have to do with public policy. Um, it's often treated, to paraphrase Pope Francis, 
as a disjointed multitude of doctrines to be imposed insistently. And what you get is you get people with certain uh, political priorities emphasizing certain uh, planks in the Catholic social teaching platform, and you get people with other political um, agendas pushing certain other planks in the Catholic social uh, political platform. Um, and this is a, a pretty poor way of understanding Catholic social teaching because it's not just a collection of teachings on issues that touch on public policy, but it really is a comprehensive view or flows from a comprehensive view of what it means to be a human person, what it means to be created in the image of God and to be created for communion with God and with others. And to understand what Catholic social teaching is as the church understands it, means stepping back a little bit and doing a little bit of theoretical reflection. A little bit, not a lot. Um, the four basic principles of, of Catholic social teaching are the dignity of the human person, solidarity, subsidiarity, and the common good. And if we get those four right, if we understand what the church means by those four principles, we can see much more clearly why what she says about, say, a just wage is intimately connected to what she says about, say, abortion uh, or euthanasia. That these aren't just bundled together policies, a settled platform that we have agreed as a compromise position, uh, but all of these positions that we see the church speaking out on and taking a position on flow from these same founding principles. So I want to touch on those briefly, and then I want to look at two areas um, in our, our current situation in this country uh, where these, understanding these principles can shape how we think about uh, the challenges that face us as citizens in, in our country today. Okay, so that's where we're going. Uh, if you get lost, just check your manual. That's where we're going. The dignity of the human person, we'll do these four quickly because this isn't the main point. Well, the dignity of the human person is, we, we hear a lot, a lot in Catholic circles. Um, it was a central theme of uh, the pontificate of Pope John Paul II. We often hear um, Genesis cited, we were created in, in the image and likeness of God. This is true. Um, as I already mentioned, the dignity of the human person also encompasses our destiny, which is communion with God and with others forever. So the dignity of the human person really is, says something about what it means to be a person, a human person, about human nature. This is a reflection on the nature of the human person. What does it mean to be a person? It means to be made for communion, made from love and made for communion. Because we're made for communion, we can't understand ourselves simply as individuals. Um, but because we're also created in God's image and we have freedom and rationality, we cannot simply be subsumed into a collective whole. And these two poles uh, play out in our politics a lot. The radical individualism, which is a mistake, and seeing that the person is simply a, a cog in a wheel of a larger social machine, machine is also a mistake that Catholic social teaching helps us to avoid. Understanding the dignity of the human person, the inviolable dignity of the human person, helps us to understand what the church means when she talks about subsidiarity uh, and solidarity. These next two principles are often paired uh, or, or faced off one against the other. Solidarity is, a, is a, a communal principle, a principle of bringing people together, and subsidiarity is a principle of decentralization. 
Um, and that's not a very good or very helpful way of looking at these two principles. And I'll explain what I mean. These two principles require each other. They play off each other and they feed off each other. Where subsidiarity fails, solidarity fails. And where solidarity is lacking, subsidiarity will not be found there. If solidarity is a sense of responsibility for others uh, and a virtue of caring for others, uh, as Catholic social teaching tells us it is, then it's a virtue that is learned not from government, not from law even, at least not primarily, but it's learned in our families first, in our schools, in our churches, in our parishes, with our employers and our employees, in our uh, everyday lives in our local communities. In short, solidarity is something that we learn and that is built up in institutions that are neither our lone individual selves, uh, nor simply the government. Solidarity lives and flourishes and arises from subsidiary institutions, from places that are between the individual and the state. Subsidiarity is often taken to be a principle of decentralization simply, that, that things ought to be handled at the lowest possible level. And that is only partly right as well. For if we understand the human person, we understand our natural inclination to enter into societies. We understand that the societies that we form have their own natural authority. My authority as a father is natural. It's not given to me by the state. It's not given to me by uh, the city of Falls Church. It's mine by virtue of my being a father. And the different levels of society into which we freely enter as persons each have their own proper authority. And the principle of subsidiarity is about arranging and seeing that these uh, authorities, these societies, each with their own proper authority, are in uh, proper arrangement and relationship with one another. If they're not, if the individual is left on his own, he will not learn solidarity. If the individual is subsumed into uh, a false solidarity, lost in the collective, uh, he will not find solidarity either. Practical example of this. Um, in communist Poland, in the town of Nowohuta, built on the eastern outskirts of Krakow, you'll find large blocks of apartments that were built intentionally to prevent neighbors from interacting with one another. This helped the state keep an eye on people and also helped to prevent the forming of uh, unwanted uh, secondary institutions. It helped prevent the forming of civil society. It helped prevent the competitors to the state. The state was trying to enforce solidarity. It was trying to provide a sort of forced solidarity where everyone is equal, everyone is together, everyone is bound together in the state. But what it resulted in was the atomization of society in an attempt to build solidarity by eliminating subsidiarity, by eliminating all those spaces between the individual and the state. The result was not solidarity, but the atomization of society. Okay, so solidarity and subsidiarity go together. They have to go together. And when they do go together, they serve the common good. The common good is the sum total of the goods of all the individuals and all the societies and organizations that make up civil society. It is not simply the sum of the parts of society, but it's the good of the whole. 
taken as such as well. Okay, so these are our four principles. They all derive from the dignity of the human person, being created in God's image, and being created for community. They all work together, and they all strengthen each other. If we take this view of Catholic social teaching, of the foundational principles of Catholic social teaching, and we compare it to how our politics in this country play out these days, there's a big gap. There's a big difference. Let me tell you a little story that illustrates this nicely, I think. In 2012, uh, President Barack Obama was in Virginia. I think it was July of 2012. And he was speaking about the uh, interconnectedness and interrelatedness of society. He was talking about how people who succeed in society aren't really self-made. He was talking about how if you are successful, it's not necessarily because you're smart. There's lots of smart people who are successful. It's not simply because you worked hard. Because a lot of people work hard and aren't successful in business or whatever. And he said, if, you, you know, if you're successful, you probably had a teacher somewhere who helped you out. You had someone who built the roads uh, and the schools that you, you know, drive down to work every day and that you, that you went and learned in. Because if you had a business, you, you didn't build that. Now, in the proper context, what he said was actually not only true, but not really even that controversial. But coming from the president of a party who was running ads saying things like, government is the one thing we all belong to, or uh, to say it another way, Barney Frank was fond of saying, um, Government is the name we give to the things we do together. Okay. This, this statement about you didn't build that was taken to be, you didn't build that, and government is really the glue that keeps everything together. Rather than responding to this uh, in a sensible way, the Romney campaign came back with essentially, yes, I did build that. Um, it wasn't government, it was me, the individual. And so what we had in our politics was this weird bifurcation, this separation of the party of more government and less individual or less market, and the party of the individual and less government. And what both sides missed in their attempt to sort of outflank the other was that great space in the middle where most of our lives actually happen. It's this space, as I've outlined already, to which Catholic social teaching addresses itself. It talks about the individual. It talks about the state. Okay, and it has important things to say about both. But most of what the church has to say about how we live in society doesn't involve the individual alone or the state directly. It happens in between. Now, I want to I shift to talking about um, those, those spaces, or at least two aspects of the space between the individual and the state where our lives play out, where citizenship happens. Um, and the first is the family, but I want to preface it a, a little bit um, by saying that the family has become a political football um, recently, which is a sad thing. Um, and it's become uh, a point of emphasis, especially on the political right, to talk about certain issues uh, usually having to do with marriage and family and with the protection of human life and abortion and euthanasia, as having a certain priority because of their, uh, the gravity of offenses against family or against human life. Um, you hear the, the term intrinsic evil used. I'm going to shy away from addressing these, these issues on those terms, not because those aren't 
appropriate, not because they're not helpful, but because using those terms, you can easily overlook why these issues are really fundamental. Okay. Um, the family is fundamental to the state. It's, uh, let me correct that. It's fundamental to society, not uh, because it's morally significant, though it certainly is, okay, but because it's ontologically fundamental. If you don't have new people, there is no society to speak of. That's not a moral statement. That's just a statement of fact. Okay, so without downplaying the importance of law, or downplaying the importance of, of government regulation of family law, and without downplaying in any way the significance of the church's moral teachings on family, I want to focus first, at least, on the importance of family simply as, simply as a matter of fact of social life. It's a fact of human existence that all of us have a mother and father. There's some of my friends from the, the New Atlantis here who could tell you about the scientific attempts to force an end around, around that brute fact of human existence, but it remains, at least now and for this foreseeable future, a fact that all of us started from a male and a female. Okay. They might have been saintly people, they might have been losers, downright scoundrels. Okay. But the fact remains, all of us began from a mother and father. That's fact one. Undeniable fact number two about human existence is that all of us start out more or less as tyrants. We're not born fully-fledged, rational, and responsible adults. Okay. And left to our own devices, most of us probably wouldn't end up that way. Okay. These two brute facts about human existence, um, the fact that we come from the union of a male and a female, and the fact that we come into this world utterly dependent, not only for our formation of our character and our education, but for our feeding, um, for our cleaning, for all of the things that all of us who are parents do and all of us who are children had done for us. Okay? We're utterly dependent on others. Okay? These are inescapable facts of human existence, and it's from those facts that I want to start the reflection on the importance of family. I already mentioned that family has become a political football and how unfortunate that is. We've done a poor job of explaining why these brute facts that I've just laid out are relevant. To understand why they're relevant, to understand why things have changed so dramatically in a way that I'm sure unsettles a lot of people in this room, including myself, uh, we have to touch on, an, on a subject that's a bit neuralgic, even in Catholic circles, which is contraception. Okay, so this guy wrote a book about Catholic citizenship, and now he wants to talk about contraception. If if sex is just about the intimate union of two people and has no intrinsic relationship to the procreation of new human beings, okay, then there really isn't much of a reason to say that two men can't be married and two women can't be. Okay. There's not much of a good reason. Because if we're ignoring the natural facts, that all people come from a man and a woman, that all people are dependent on other people at, at their birth, okay, if marriage, or at least sexual intimacy is simply about the sexual fulfillment of two people, okay, then there's nothing particularly special about that institution. There's no reason for the family to be held up and protected by the state. 
there's no reason that the, the sexual intimacy of two people of the same sex is essentially different than two people of opposite sex. This is a distinction that we've given up a long time ago, long before there was ever such a thing as the gay rights movement, long before anybody was talking about um, Supreme Court rulings imposing same-sex marriage across the country. Okay. The connection between marriage, between sex and marriage, and between marriage and the family fell apart decades ago. And to protect the family in our culture today without regrounding ourselves uh, on that foundation, on the necessary connection between family life and creating new people, um, on our insisting that the family is the font of society and that marriage is the foundation of family, if we can't do that, then we're lost. As Pope John Paul II says, as the family goes, so goes the nation and so goes the world. That wasn't simply, as I said earlier, a moral observation. It wasn't necessarily about the sixth commandment. Okay? That was an observation about the fact that society itself depends on people who are willing to dedicate themselves to raising new people, to bring them into this world, teaching them love, teaching them responsibility, teaching them to be good citizens, the importance of parents as primary educators of their children is worth mentioning here. It's very easy as parents, and I know this because I'm a parent, it's very easy to outsource the formation of our children, to not take seriously our roles as educators, to not take ser seriously the formation of our own children, assuming that someone else will do it, assuming that someone else will te teach them how to be honest uh, rather than liars, to be brave and courageous rather than timid and weak. It's easy to underestimate the effect that our own weaknesses have on our children. Okay. If I am bringing filth into my home, how can I expect my children to grow up pure? If I am angry and resentful, how can I expect my children to be any different? And if I want to live in a nation of people who are trustworthy and decent and honest and courageous and brave and dedicated and hardworking, how can I expect that in my country if I can't do it in my own home? And how can I expect the future to be better than the present if I'm not willing to take those small but very difficult steps in my own life? Without strong families forming citizens to be good citizens, our countries, our nation's future is dim. Another point I want to touch on is religious freedom. And again, in this case, I want to talk about it in a way that we don't often think about it. Religious freedom these days often is discussed as a tug of war between state interests and private interests as a tug of war between public interests and individual interests. Excuse me. This is a particularly truncated, unhelpful way of thinking about religious freedom. We think of religious freedom as a concession by the state to the individual. 
we are not only thinking about religious freedom in a way that diverges from how the church understands religious freedom, but we're thinking about religious freedom in a way that diverges from how um, the best of American political thought conceives of religious freedom. We have to get into the habit of, if we are not already, insisting on and declaring and showing, evidencing by the way we live our lives, that religion is not a private good alone, but is in fact a public good. That the common good requires us to live lives of religious fervor. Politics cannot be what politics is if it does not have limits. The church is one of the institutions that teaches us the limits of politics, that insists on it, that demonstrates it. The church provides many social goods, performing the corporal works of mercy, not least of all. Okay. But religious freedom is, is not reducible to uh, a concession to, to a useful institution. The church is certainly useful but in providing social goods, but that's not religious freedom either. That's not the grounding for religious freedom either. Religion is, in fact, a matter of justice. It is the virtue of religion by which we offer to God what we owe to God as his creatures. The offering of worship, the forming of souls, being a conduit for grace, these are things that the church does that society depends upon and that no other institution can fulfill, at least not in the way the church does. It's a tough sell. Religious freedom on individual grounds is a tough sell these days. It's probably a much tougher sell to try and convince people that the church is good for society because the church is good for society, not because we should be left alone so that you know, we can keep the peace or that, that the church can do what it wants as a concession from a benevolent uh, a polity. The church provides a public good. And the church deserves, in justice, the freedom to fulfill its duty, to fulfill its role in our public life. If we allow religious freedom to be reduced simply to a matter of public versus private, a concession from the polity, a concession from the state, we have conceded that religion is simply a matter of opinion. We have conceded that religion has nothing uh, to offer uh, that is irreplaceable. It's a quirk to be indulged in those citizens who go in for it not a foundational element of a well-ordered public life. The idea that religion is a fundamental element of a well-ordered public life, a fundamental and irreplaceable element of a well-ordered public life, is not something that was made up by the Catholic Church, though she does agree with that and insist on that. It's something that was understood by many of our founding fathers. I'm not going to give the impression that all of our founding fathers felt exactly the same way towards institutional religion, let alone towards Catholicism. But it's worth noting um, the assistance of men like John Adams, who saw religion and morality as indis indispensable supports for the republic, and our constitution was fit for a religious and moral people and wholly unfit for any other. Or Washington in his farewell address, insisting that without religion, our politics would not long last. It's very tempting to think, especially in our technocratic and meritocratic age, to think of politics and economics 
as machines that essentially run themselves. If we can just tinker with them just right, if we can get the, the law set just so, if the marginal tax rate can be just right, um, if we can get the delegate counts just so, that politics and economics will run themselves. This is simply not true. Um, every nation has always uh, depended on having a people of a certain character in order to flourish, and this is especially true of a republic like ours. And that comes to, brings me to my final point, um, which is sort of an unpopular one. We think of our rights to liberty, our rights to freedom, um, and it's proper to speak of those. We could give a whole series of talks on what rights are, what they mean, and how we ought to understand them. But let me propose that the place of a Catholic citizen um, is to live a life worthy of the freedom that we would claim for ourselves and for others. Okay. Freedom cut off from the truth, freedom divorced from the truth about the human person quickly devolves into license. It becomes self-cannibalizing and ceases to be freedom and in fact becomes slavery, slavery to sin. This is a truth to which Catholic citizens are well suited to testify. In fact, no one can testify to this better than we can. One of the greatest things that we can do, perhaps the greatest thing we can do for our country and as Catholic citizens, as disciples in this country, is to live our lives faithfully, to live our lives faithfully in public, and to demonstrate what a life worthy of freedom looks like. We need virtuoso citizens. We need citizens who are capable of living their freedom well. And the best way for us to do that is to strive for sanctity. If what we profess to be true is in fact true, if we were created by and for God, if God took on our human nature and redeemed our race, then the truth about who we are as persons, as citizens, is most fully revealed in the light of the Incarnation. And it's our job as disciples to show that, even in, and these days perhaps especially in, our citizenship. Thank you. We'll now open the floor up to questions. If you just raise your hand, I'll come around with the microphone. Hi, I have a question about what is your view of the notion of, of separation of church and state? What is my view of the notion of separation of church and state? Uh, they are separate. Um, <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's behind your question, not to outflank you, but to, to, to see what specifically you want. I mean, I, I think there is a mistaken notion of the separation of church and state, which says that, that um, the, the reality to which religion speaks 
and the reality to which politics speaks are utterly independent of each other. And I think that that's simply not true. Not as a matter of belief so much, although that, but, but just practically speaking. Um, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to say that, that uh, if politics is uh, about how we arrange our common lives together, that that conversation should exclude uh, a discussion of or an acknowledgement of those things which are, at least for people of religion, um, uh, most fundamental, right? Um, so I don't think they can be utterly excluded um, uh, in practice. Uh, I think attempts to do so uh, are foolhardy. Uh, there have been historic attempts to do so that generally ended in lots of bloodshed. Now, that said, I think that there is, uh, and the church insists on this, a properly, uh, there's a proper autonomy to political affairs, that, that, that the political realm, uh, in part because it's, uh, we are by nature political animals. Politics is part of our nature. Um, and so our living in political community is natural to us. And so it has a natural, there's a certain natural autonomy to our political life. Um, and so between this sort of absolute secularism and theocracy is a pretty broad space where we can hash out uh, a life that includes religion but is not uh, ruled politically by religion. Um, that's a broad sketch of what I think about that question. Did you want something more specific? No, I'm, I'm pretty just, um, that's fine, thank you. Jolly Hill. I can just speak loudly. Um, well, Stephen, uh, so my question for you, I went to an event today. Um, I identify as a pro-life Democrat, as you know. So um, I went to an event today with Speaker Paul Ryan at Georgetown. Um, recent data that Cara put out said the most important political word for millennials on both the left and the right in the United States is inclusive. And Paul Ryan said today that he wanted to build a, a diverse inclusive and open America were, were his words. What does the Catholic moral imagination and political imagination say about inclusivity? And how can we communicate the Catholic vision for politics in a manner that communicates that vision of inclusivity? Uh, well, there are two ways to answer that question. One is, as Jesus said, um, if you're not with me, you're against me. <laughs> um, I think he also said, if you're not against me, then you're with me. Um, it depends on what you're including, I guess. Uh, you know, uh, as Catholics, we believe, uh, right, the word Catholic is, is universal, right? So our faith is to be shared with everybody, exclusive of nobody. Um, uh, and so that certainly is inclusive. And I think that it's incumbent upon us to, to make every effort to to evangelize, to catechize, to share, uh, to share this this great gift that we have received with everyone that we encounter. Um, now, the other side of that is that, for any number of reasons, distinctions have to be made between true and false, right and wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, and because I know you, I'm sort of reading into your question all kinds of things that weren't into it, but <laughs> weren't in it. Um, 
But there, there are certainly certain things that the church says, no, that's not okay. Um, you know, sometimes the apostles are told to shake their dust from their feet, but not until they've proposed and worked and shown love okay, and really done that, not just sort of paid tribute to, yeah, I checked that box, I you know, made that offer, and I'm, I'm going to move on. Um, so inclusivity is, is, is a tricky word uh, uh, because we're called to, to, to not put limits on God's offer to humanity, which was offered to everybody, not just us, um, not just the people we think he should have offered it to. Um, but at the same time, there are conditions on uh, conditions that God puts on what's expected of those who will follow him. Um, now, those conditions aren't my conditions. They're God's. The church proclaims them as part of the good news. Uh, and as the Pope is fond of saying, you know, we shouldn't turn those into stones to throw at people, but that doesn't mean that they're not there. Uh, and I think, I, think, I think that it's true, I don't know if it's true of millennials, whatever that, whatever that means, you know what I mean, whatever that means. Um, people want to know that they're, they're invited, that they're welcome. They also want to know that there's something of substance, that there's something firm to hold on to. Uh, that doesn't mean that we live in a world of sort of uh, black and white all the time. Uh, but it does, it does mean that, that, what's the line from to the Chesterton or C.S. Lewis? The whole, the mind is like a mouth. The reason you open it is so that you can eventually close down on something that's good, right? So an open mind that's just open, that stays open, never closes on or grasps something that's good and true. Um, so inclusiveness, invite, all are welcome. Here comes everybody, right? That's the Catholic Church. Um, but that doesn't mean that the church itself is up for grabs. Earlier in your talk, you mentioned the spectrum between uh, all-inclusive state and the rugged individualism, and we need to live in the middle. Uh, I recall reading that Alex de Tocqueville, when he came to our country and, and, and wrote about it, he commented very much that Americans as a society had, were, in, were inhabiting that great middle at the time that he wrote where we had a whole set of institutions that were somewhere between everything from, you know, the, I'll just, you know, examples like the Boy Scouts, local Moose Lodge, the different things. And he commented that we were joiners in that way. Do you think we've lost some of that uh, yeah, or, over our history from the, from the 19th century? Uh, I do. I, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I mentioned Tocqueville a little bit in the book. Um, and I, I was going to mention this when I talked about subsidiarity, but I'll mention it now because you asked such a great question. Um, What's the Putnam, Robert Putnam book, Bowling Alone? Bowling Alone. Bowling alone. <laughs> um, there are a lot of reasons for why we don't build the, 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 the minor social institutions that we used to. We move around more than we used to. We don't, are we aren't born, live, and die in the same place anymore. Uh, we, we pull up roots and we never put them back down the way we used to. We have smaller families. Um, one of the things that's important, I think especially for people on the political right, people like me, or can call themselves conservatives, remember, is that a, an expansive state can really sap uh, the energies of civil society. Uh, a state that does too much 
intrudes on um, the, the, the proper sphere, sphere of civil society. And when that happens, uh, civil society tends to atrophy. The state starts doing it, and so we stop doing it. And then we don't have the, the social muscle to start doing it again. And so it becomes a sort of vicious circle. Um, and that's a real problem. And I think American conservatives talk about that a fair amount. Um, but what we don't talk about from the conservative point of view is, is that that's not always government's fault. Uh, when we neglect to do the work that, we, that civil society needs to do, okay, when we just sort of outsource to government or to some higher level the things that we ought to be doing as families, as parishes, as local communities, okay, as schools, when we outsource those things, we're inviting, we're, we're leaving a gap, a social gap. There's a space, and someone's got to come in and pick up the slack. And usually that someone else, whether they want to or not, is government. Um, subsidiarity, in a sense, can be violated from the top down by government intruding into places that's not welcome or wanted and has no right being there. Okay? And we see that a lot. But it, subsidiarity, this proper ordering of society, can be violated from the bottom up when we don't live lives of social responsibility. That's, that's sort of a really awful cliche. But when we don't live the responsibility that's incumbent upon us to live as persons, when we don't teach our kids Someone else sort of picks up the slack later on because the teacher's got to deal with the rowdy kids or whatever, right? When we don't, when we're not uh, responsible in our investments, when we're not, whatever it is, when we don't live our citizenship well, there are social costs beyond that. And often that results in government coming in to fix the problem because no one else will do it. Um, so it's, 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 it's give and take. And, and this, is, this is one thing that I think both of our parties missed, to get back to my you know, both parties are sort of pulling farther and farther apart on this issue, and there's this huge middle ground where we live most of our lives that say they both seem to miss. As the left seems to think that, that, that uh, individuals in civil society just aren't doing enough jobs, so the state has to step in and help. And in a certain sense, they're right. And, and you know, the political right says it's exactly the opposite. Well, the state's stepping in so much, and, and we need civil society back. Well, but really, only the, the biggest way to, to solve that is to, to live our lives in that middle, to put our elbows out, Say, no, this is my family, and I'm going to take responsibility for it. And I'm going to take responsibility for it. This is my parish. I'm going to take responsibility for it. These are people who live in my parish. Whether they want it or not, we're going to be responsible for them. This is my school. And, and, and to really reassert ourselves and put our time and effort. The last section of this book is some really practical, almost mundane, almost trivial things we can do to be better citizens. In their families, from pray with your kids and eat dinner with them. Okay? Take your wife out on a date. It's in the book, honey. You should read it. <laughs> <laughs> Things like this that, that might not immediately seem to have anything to do with citizenship. But you know, if, if civil society is atrophying, then we need to exercise. We need to work out these social muscles that will allow civil society to support the way that it needs to support. And if it can't, then we can't complain about government coming in to fill the gaps if, if we're not willing to fill them ourselves. So. And I, by the way, just, I don't think that everything can be taken care of by civil society. And I say in the book, government is, a is not a necessary evil. It's a necessary good. Bill. Uh, first of all, congratulations on your book, Stephen. Thank you. Uh, I have a question. Uh, I noticed that your book deals almost exclusively with uh, domestic issues. And the uh, United States is the biggest uh, military, economic, and political power in the world. 
and uh, it's a country where the majority of its citizens are Christians. And uh, so I think that uh, this is a country that has a lot of potential to uh, be a force for peace in the world. Why is it that, in your opinion, that very often uh, there seems to be a dissonance between uh, Catholics, say, politicians and, and um, uh, commentators, etc., and uh, the Catholic Church, uh, that, for example, many uh, great Catholic politicians and uh, writers, etc., in the United States who uh, can be uh, great defenders of orthodoxy of the Church's teaching on life and marriage. For example, in 2003, a lot of these uh, people failed to uh, um, failed to uh, condemn the uh, American invasion of Iraq, which uh, Pope John Paul II and the uh, Vatican had condemned. Similarly, uh, now their opposition to Obama mostly deals with social issues, which which it should be. But for example, I haven't heard much Catholic criticism of uh, the use of drones that's claimed hundreds of thousands of uh, sorry hundreds of lives. Uh, why do you think this is so? Um. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer that question, but I, I can speculate a little bit. I think um, one of the reasons that you hear uh, a lot more, um, well, it's like two, two aspects of this. One, one reason I think you hear a lot more um, from both Catholics on the right and left about domestic issues is because, uh, I think in part because they, they feel that there's more can be done about it. Okay, um, these things you can move the football on these things legislatively in a way that you can't with foreign policy. Okay. Um, and the other reason I think is that there, when it comes to issues like um, abortion and euthanasia or you know, natural marriage, um, these are not issues that afford of uh, sort of, th these are issues that have a, a very clear and unmistakable Catholic teaching on them. Okay, there is no Catholic teaching on the justness or unjustness of a particular military action. Okay? Now, what I'm not saying is that people should disregard what popes say about this or that military action. Okay? What I'm saying is that the Church's teaching on that is that the proper authority for making that decision are the proper political authorities. Okay. Um, now, the wisdom, the prudence, the justice or injustice of any particular military action is obviously a moral issue. And it's obviously things, something that Catholics can and should weigh in on. Um, but I think you see more uh, attention paid to the neuralgic social issues, in part because there seems to be although perhaps less than some people think there is, there seems to be a sort of silver bullet on something like abortion. You just simply can't justify it. It's not ever justifiable. There's no such thing as a justifiable abortion. Um, and so you, well, you can debate whether this military action or that military action is justifiable or not. It's much more interesting or you, it's much more enticing to enter in a debate where you think you have the trump card that that can win the debate. And so you see more effort poured into these things that seem clear cut and less attention paid to um, foreign policy issues that are much more complicated, much more muddy, permit much more of the need for expertise and prudential judgment um, 
and are, are farther removed from the legislative process. I, that's part of it. Um, I don't, by the way, think that there is just um, uh, you weren't really suggesting this, but I, I also want to say there, there's, there, there's not a moral equivalence between um, uh, on, on all issues concerning Catholics in the, in the political realm. Prudential judgment is not a get out of jail free card. Okay? Saying that something is up to our prudential judgment doesn't mean that whatever we say goes or I can say whatever I want. We're still morally responsible for de decisions made through our prudence or our imprudence. Um, and that's, that's a bit inconvenient for soundbite politics. Um, uh, often, and it usually, it's, it's the, usually it's the political right that likes to invoke, you know, this is a matter of, of prudence, okay, prudential judgment. Well, okay, fine. Uh, it's, not, it's not a get out of jail free card. Um, uh, we're still morally responsible, culpable, probably, for, for decisions we made make in that way, which is most of the moral decisions we make. Um, Anyway, but that doesn't mean that there's a moral equivalence between, say, uh, support for abortion or support for, say, the invasion of Iraq. It's sim simply not moral equivalence. Uh, Cardinal Ratz then Cardinal Ratzinger wrote basically as much in a letter to the Catholic bishops in 2004. We had a question up here. Thank you very much, Steve. This has been a good read. It's a very teachable book, actually. Uh, plug for you there. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the sameness and difference between or with respect to the common good and the state. Uh, I notice you've got you know, red, white, and blue at the top, but we haven't heard too much about patriotism um, in the talk so far. and. I also wonder about, we hear a lot of talk about the global common good. Uh, where do you stop? Where do you draw a boundary for the common good? Um, and where does the nation state, or my preferred term, or the, the American Republic fit uh, into uh, that thinking? Um. Well, I thought that was going to be an easy question, and then it didn't end up that way. <laughs> uh, to, to the first point, um, the church has, has long been clear about that it's, and Aristotle says the same thing, essentially, that, that the, this, the state, as I said earlier, the state's not a necessary evil. It's a, it's a, it's a necessary good. Um, and it's a state that's primarily responsible for what we call the common good. Um, uh, it has primary responsibility for, for the, the to, to see to it that subsidiarity is being maintained, that society is properly ordered and well-ordered, and um, uh, that the institutions that make up society, that all these little platoons, as Burke called them, um, are, are not only playing well together, but are, but are doing the things that they're supposed to be doing. That churches are being good churches, and that schools are being good schools, and hospitals are being good hospitals, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
And there is no other institution that's in a position to, to ensure that ordering as best, as best it can other than the state. That's the state's job. And so the state has, in that sense, primary responsibility for the common good. Um, is there a natural entity if, if the state is the polis, the city, and we can talk about the difference between the state and the polis, okay, if, 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 if the political uh, entity we call the state is a natural institution because we are by nature po political, is there a natural institution beyond that? Is there a natural authority beyond what we know of as the nation state or in our case the republic? I don't know. Um, I think it's easier to talk about a common good that extends to all of humanity by virtue of our humanity. Okay. Um, uh, the church's insistence on our, uh, you know, our responsibility to those closest to us first and then outward from there. I mean, our, our, my responsibility to someone I've never met halfway around the world is not the same as my responsibility to my wife and children. And it's ridiculous to suggest otherwise. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there isn't, in some sense, a responsibility to everyone. Um, and the church is fairly clear that there is a response. We do have a responsibility to everyone. Um, what is the institution appropriate to the administration of our universal responsibility? I, I don't know. Beyond. Uh, beyond the state, I don't know. Um, the only institution that I know of that, at least in scope, fits the bill is the church, um, because the church is universal in a way the state can't be. Um, there is this this thing about a world political authority that you hear come up now and again in Catholic social teaching. Um, I think it was mentioned. Uh, by Pope Francis in Laudato Si. But it was mentioned a little bit more extensively by, by Benedict XVI, if I'm remembering correctly, in Caritas and Veritate. And he, he, he talked about it in a way that was interesting. He was talking about the, a, a world political authority um, that can, for example, we live in a world today, and I'm not the one to talk about this best, but we live in a world today where there are certain entities non-state actors or financial entities that really uh, exist outside of any one nation's sphere of influence, right? So you have the supernatural, the supra, not supernatural, supranational corporation, for example, that really isn't under anyone's jurisdiction so they can kind of slow down and run. Well, who, if there are human um, affairs that exceed the competence or the jurisdiction of the state, then whose jurisdiction are they under? Or are they just sort of the, the highest authority? That's a question that would suggest that there would be some authority that would regulate these, these human creations. Um, but, but Benedict lays out the conditions, and if I remember correctly, the conditions under which this would be a good a global, a world political authority. And basically, he describes the conditions that would make this feasible. And those conditions are basically the conditions under which it wouldn't be necessary. Um, everyone respects subsidiarity and uh, aims for the common good and is not starting wars that they shouldn't be starting and is dedicated to justice. Well, if we had all that, we wouldn't need this super political, world political authority. Um, 
and it, in, in a sense, it remains sort of an, an, an open-ended question in Catholic social teaching, as, I, as, I, as best I can read it, the, that there are realms of human activity that exceed the, the jurisdiction of any political authority would suggest that there should be some authority. What that exactly is or what it looks like is a matter of conjecture. I don't know if there's, is that what you were getting at? Yeah, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what I'm getting at. I'm trying to get at your expertise. Uh, I guess, is there something about a common good? Are there certain things that the government or, or the state is concerned about in the common good that, are there certain things in the common good that the state has no business ever getting involved in? That you say there's a gap and someone leaves a gap. So are there, is there a limiting factor where, you know, okay, if, I don't care if there's a social gap, you still have to stay out. In which case then, if you had some common good that a global authority had to be concerned with, maybe there'd only be one or two little things that would be the common good that they could involve. But what do you see? Sure. Um, th there are certain things that the state just, uh, there are elements of the common good that are not, uh, that the state's not going to, and in many cases, practically speaking, can't insert itself into the regulation of um, insofar as the common good consists in the good of the whole, but also the, the good of all the constituent parts of the good, not only individual persons, but social entities, um, the, the common good is, is, is not just a material good, right? It's, it's uh, any more than our, your good is a material good. Um, it's also a, a, a religious, moral, and spiritual good. And the church just simply isn't, sorry, not the church, the, the, the state's simply incapable of, of, of forming your soul in the way that it needs to be formed. Um, unless there's gonna be a bureaucrat for every person on the planet, which would seem to be a problem numerically, if not practically, um, you know, it's, it's, it's simply not possible, practically speaking. And, and it, it ought not to be. I mentioned this earlier, and this is something that's, uh, just to, to reemphasize, we like to think of all authority as essentially being the same. That the exercise of, the, of authority, the, ex the exercise of power is sort of, it's the same no matter who does it, whereas some people have more of it and some people have less of it. But that's not really true. The authority that the police officer has by virtue of his being deputized and wearing a badge is not the same authority that I have by virtue of being a husband and a father. They're different kinds of authority. Um, and until we can recognize natural institutions, that the family is a natural that there's a there there that's not created by the state, that's not created by human law, that's there by nature. Um, and the state's not the only one, the state is also it's sort of a natural thing, it's family. The church, of course, is also supernatural, but it's a, um, until we can recognize that these institutions of civil society, many of them, not all of them, are, are societies in themselves, have a dignity and an authority unto themselves by virtue of the kind of thing they are, which is a really mind-blowingly radical thing to say these days, um, we'll until we can establish that, we'll constantly be fighting turf wars over, you know, that essentially say that different kinds of authority and different kinds of power are interchangeable. And if I can do it, well, why shouldn't I do it? 
right? If the state can raise children, why shouldn't it? I mean, it raised children in orphanages, it maybe doesn't do a very good job, but what, but what if it did a better job? Then wouldn't it make more sense if we socialized child variants? The, 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 they're different kinds of authorities, not just a matter of efficiency or practicality. Um, it has to do with the proper authority. Um, and selling people uh, that there are kinds, that there are natural kinds, is a tough sell. Uh, but I think the family is, is, is a fairly good place to start still. If I tell you that, that my responsibilities to my children are different than my responsibi responsibilities to the, the neighbor kid, most people would, yes, I agree with that, would understand that. Um, and most people, I think, would even agree that it's not, that it's not different because the law says it's different. It's different because it is different. Most people would agree that it's not simply a matter of efficiency. Um, but that it's, it's, they wouldn't like the word natural, but I think they'd agree with the concept behind the word natural. Um, moving into the church, it's a tougher sell, but essential, as I said, for, for really understanding religious freedom, that the church does something that, that society as a whole needs and that can't be done by anybody else or anything else. Um, if you really want to get into it, not to contradict or qualify anything Michael Novak said when he was here to visit, Social justice can be understood as the, the justice in the relationships between and among the constituent elements of society, not just individuals in the whole. That's what makes it different than simply distributive justice. It makes it different than commutative justice. Right? What is it that's distinct about social justice? How is this not just a repetition of some other kind of justice? But if you understand that there are natural kinds, that there are different actual societies that have their own authority, rights, dignity, the relationship between and among those societies within the whole of society. Um, that's where social justice plays out for the most part. Please join me in thanking Stephen White for being with us today. Stephen, thank you so much for your insights and for this wonderful book, um, which we have available in the bookstore. And uh, Stephen has graciously agreed to sign copies um, if you purchase them here tonight. So thank you all for coming. And have a wonderful evening. Thank you.